In this episode of Your Double Podcast, we are speaking to Ashley Nicole Russell. She is an award-winning family law attorney, author and a speaker who is changing the way divorce is perceived around the world. As a child of divorce and a divorcee, she brings a unique, relatable and personal understanding to her clients and the communities that she serves. With more than a decade of experience in collaboration law, Ashley Nicole knows firsthand how this model benefits families during separation and divorce. This method, which Ashley Nicole used in her own divorce, allows the couple to move forward peacefully with understanding and respect for each other. Of course, we talk at length about this collaboration process in this episode. She's also the author of The Cure for Divorce Culture and the host of her own podcast, Divorce Healthy. She's an advisor for the co-parenting affair and is a member of the National Board of Directors for the National Parents Organization. Now, I'm also joined by Thomas Saviskas in this podcast. Thomas is a left-behind parent from Lithuania and is currently residing in Japan. If you want to know more about the story, we have an episode with him. So please look back a few episodes and you'll find his whole story there. Now, before we get into this episode, we have a short message from the co-founder of Five Parent, Daniel Dowler. As you might know, uh, the U.S. has finally, after a number of years, appointed a new ambassador to Japan. And for those who have been affected by full custody, parental abduction, and parental alienation in Japan, um, this is a bit of provides a bit of hope for us that there could be some change. And so, Find My Parent is working with um, a number of actors in Japan and in the U.S. to speak and reach out to the ambassador to let him know, first of all, what is happening, what is the reality happening on the ground, how it's affecting American children, American military members, American families, and what he can do to to make change, to protect American children and our servicemen and women, to protect American families, and even to protect children in general, because there will be a spillover effect. Um, So currently, we are running a campaign to pressure the ambassador and show him what needs to be done and why it needs to be done. Um, For anybody who's interested in being involved in this campaign, and you don't have to be affected by parental abduction or alienation in Japan or anywhere, if if you really just believe that it's, it's wrong for a child to be abducted by a parent and lose half of their family, then please participate in this campaign. And you can do that by visiting our website. Again, the link is in the description of this podcast. Uh, When you visit our website, you will see a letter. Um, And if you just click on the country you're from, again, you don't have to be American to participate. You can be from any country in the world. Um, There's a letter that's being sent to officials around the world, ambassadors, U.S. senators, U.S. representatives, even ambassadors to the U.N., uh, child rights committees in the U.N. and the EU, et cetera. It tells them, sends them a strong message that Japan is encouraging parental abduction. Japan is refusing to return children who have been abducted, even though European, American, Australian, Asian countries, et cetera, have put the parent on their you know, most wanted list. They have listed that parent as a crime. They're refusing to return these children. And Japan is even encouraging the abduction of children by telling their citizens how to abduct, where the loopholes are in the Hague Convention, 
by refusing to cooperate with embassies when they want to check on the well-being of our children abducted in Japan, by refusing to pass a very simple law, which is joint custody, which exists in the entire world, including North Korea, except Japan. So these letters will reach a number of key officials around the world, letting them know what is happening in Japan and what they can do to push for change. And what we're asking for them, and including asking the U.S. ambassador to do, is to send really a clear and strong and consistent messages to the Japanese leaders, prime minister, foreign ministers, letting them know that joint custody needs to be passed, that we were, we are no longer going to sit aside and watch why our children are abducted into the country. We're asking them to publicly ask leaders in Japan to comment on statements they've said regarding the abduction of children and how the U.S. has never acted on the hate convention and the Goldman Act, rather the Goldman Act, not the hate convention, how the U.S. has never acted on the Goldman Act and sanctioned the country. And so so basically, they're saying is we can continue to get keep getting away with, you know, ignoring parental abductions internationally. Um, and we're asking them also to engage with with local politicians because there is a large local movement in Japan that's pushing for joint custody. Because at the end of the day, all children, regardless of nationality, religion, ethnicity, anything, they deserve both parents in their lives. And that's what's best for them. Statistically, we know that it's what's best for them. And so we're asking them to engage with these local uh, politicians to see where we can work together to push for joint custody in, in the country. And for the Americans in particular, um, just as we earlier talked about how the Goldman Act has failed American parents and how parents are um, asking for they're requesting access to their children through the Hague Convention, you know, um, that Japan signed. And Japan is refusing, refusing to actually adhere to this. They are using delay tactics, a number of things. So for the Americans in particular, we're requesting that they really require a, an update from the State Department regarding the status of access cases and keep Japan, hold Japan accountable for a convention they signed. This is not something that, you know, Japan never agreed to. They signed a convention and yet they're still not adhering to it. So again, if you care about children, you believe that children deserve two loving parents, that children do not deserve to be taken in the middle of the night, abducted to another country, another city away from half of their family, the children do not deserve to be brainwashed, to hate half of who they are, hate half you know, their family, their parent. So again, if you believe that all children should have access to two loving parents, if you believe it's not right for children to be taken from their homes in the middle of the night, abducted to another country, another city, if you believe it's wrong for children to be brainwashed, to hate half of who they are, their parent, half of their family. And if you believe that children develop best when they have access to two loving parents, then I highly recommend you take part in this campaign to pressure the American leadership, the American ambassador, as well as officials around the world to let Japan know that enough is enough. We are done 
sitting by and watching our children being abducted. We're done watching our children's future be ruined for no good reason. And so if that's what you believe, regardless of whether you've been affected or not, regardless of where you're from, please do participate in this campaign. Again, you can do that by visiting our website, um, sending a letter. You even have the option of personalizing the letter. Add some details about your case, your situation, how it's affected you or your family. And it will be sent to officials around the world. So they, they get a strong and unified message that we are done with domestic and international parental abductions and we will no longer turn a blind eye. If you'd like to know more about this initiative, please reach out to us through Facebook or Instagram. Now, without further ado, let's get into the episode. I'm going to start the questions here with something that I'm pretty curious about. As we know, there are a lot of branches in law. People tend to choose like you know, corporate law and all that because it's more profitable. But you have done something different. What motivated you to choose family law? I'm asking this question in particular as most people who require your help in this field will be couples or partners or even ex-partners who are generally unhappy, resentful and, and all that. My parents had a pretty... Um, conflictive and um, animosity-riddled divorce whenever I was young. And when I went to law school, well, when I went to undergrad, I became a district court mediator. And so I was a mediator in district court and dealt with a lot of different interpersonal relationship issues there and just really started to understand alternative dispute resolution. And I felt like that could have made a big difference in my own childhood. And so then whenever I went to law school to further pursue alternative dispute resolution, I really realized the family system was broken in a large way and that the attorneys were really contributing to it in a large way. And so that kind of became my mission to try to make a difference. And first, I tried to make a difference with starting a collaborative family law practice. And so I started that straight out of law school hung my own shingle and went out on my own on this mission to try to make a difference in how divorce was being handled, knowing that, you know, if you settle outside of court and if you are amicable, it's a lot better for the children and for the clients involved. But I realized that it would be an uphill battle to be able to change how people think about divorce and about child custody. I was able to be very successful with that within my own community. Um, I ended up winning Small Business Leader of the Year because they said my clients were happy and healthy contributing members of society on the other side of divorce. And when that happened, a lot of people came up to me um, after I was awarded the award. It was, you know, we didn't know who would win. It was a lot of different business leaders in the industry and or in multiple different types of industries, not just in divorce. In fact, I think I was one of the first attorneys to ever be given um, that award in my town. But all of these people came up to me crying and just very exposed and vulnerable and said, you know, where were you during my divorce? Where were you during my parents' divorce? Where was this? And it was really like this cry for help. And so in winning the award, I really, I kind of went home and I didn't really feel 
this, you know, gratification that I had done it, I really more so felt an overwhelming responsibility that I needed to help people understand what was really happening in family law, how broken it really was, and be an effective change on the system. And so that's when I started changing how divorce is handled in America and researching what's happened to children out of litigated divorce to try to change what was happening because I knew that my own life had been really molded by what had happened between my parents and the amount of conflict that they had between the two of them and the animosity and adversity that I experienced as a child my entire life growing up between the two of them being restricted from seeing my dad. He was you know, deemed a secondary parent. That had a large effect on me as well. And, and what really happened to me was a drop in the bucket of what has happened to a lot of other people where they've been completely alienated from another parent instead of just semi-alienated or taken you know, from one country to another country. And, and that, it really, um, it burdens me that that happens because I know how those children feel. Um, unfortunately, children, whenever the par- a parent is taken from them, they don't understand that that parent didn't unilaterally choose that. And it, it really affects their identity and it affects how they feel about themselves. It affects how loved they feel. And it's just very intense. And we've found, you know, through tons of research that this can be changed, that it can be managed. And the more that parents know about what their behavior is doing, the less likely they are to do it. Because to date, we don't really have a lot of understanding and research around what happens to children long term. We're just now getting that because we're just now getting adult children who have been through all of these types of tactics to be able to say, this is what happened to me and this is what's happened now to you know this country or to our world. And so in America, you know, we're at the lowest recorded marriage rate of all of recorded history, lower than the Great Depression in both world wars. And that's because the children of today who are becoming adults don't believe in the institution of marriage because of how corrupt divorce is. And that's just very sad because family is a very stabilizing effect on humans in general. We can see from this pandemic and what's happened that when people are ostracized, they have mental effects that lead to suicide and other issues. The suicide rate actually out of litigated divorce is incredibly high, 30% higher. And then of course, alcohol and substance abuse. And then in America, we have a big problem with school shootings. And actually a lot of those come from single parent homes and children who have been through divorce, the, the shooters themselves. And so it's just, it, the, the, the research is very interesting. I've dedicated my career and body of work to it. And it, it all points to the same direction, which is that we need reform. We need to have both parents involved and children need to stop being used as a pawn. Last night, while preparing for this very interview, I spent some time quickly reading through, or you can call it skimming through, your book to understand your point of view when it comes to divorce and related topics. For listeners who are interested, the book is called The Cure for Divorce Culture. I personally think it's a great book for anyone to read before they get married so that they know the challenges that they have to face to stay married. Ashley's a super honest person when it comes to her writing and she talks about experiences in detail and it's a great read if you're a child of divorce as well. Now, Ashley Nicole, you mentioned in the book that a lot of kids from divorced families end up becoming juveniles and violent characters. Can you explain a bit about that and what happens to the neurochemistry of a child or a child's brain that goes through his or her 
parents divorce. Absolutely. So I did, the book is 100% cited. So I wrote it as if it was a legal research project because I wanted to make sure that it wasn't just my opinion, but that I was giving all of the background information that there is related to the topic and that, you know, people would be able to formulate an opinion for themselves. So this is not legal advice. I'm not giving legal advice. This is just me being a researcher and, and understanding there's a problem and trying to bring it to light. Because in all areas, and so, you know, the, what, what we have found is that the attachment theory issue. So when children are young, they form different types of attachment with their parents. And that then results in how they relate to other people down the road. And that is a big problem with whenever a child experiences the trauma of a parent being taken from them or alienation or they're, you know, put in the middle of a high conflict situation between their parents, they develop problems with attachment theory. And then that creates issues down the road. Additionally, when children are young and the synapses are being formed in their brains, and again, I'm not, you know, a neurologist, but all the research is in my book, then there are problems that come with the fight or flight responses. If you're constantly being triggered in a fight or flight response at a very young age when your brain is forming, then a lot of problems start to format into the folds of the brain, a lot of conflict issue problems. And if you kind of think about, if you just kind of pull back and take a 20,000 foot view here, if you're a child, your parents hate each other. They say it all the time. They say they hate each other. They destroy each other in front of you. They talk very poorly about each other in front of you 24-7. They you know, hurt each other. They're abusive towards one another. If all of those things happen when you're a child and you see that the two people who are supposed to love you the most are able to expose you to that and also each other to that. And additionally, you see I am the makeup of these two people. And if you hear constantly one half of your makeup saying how much it hates the other half of your makeup, then you start to hate yourself and you start to hate other people around you. And then is it such a long shot to think that a child who's being exposed to that 24-7 at home feels any type of empathy towards little Susie when he goes to school or she goes to school and then just replays the same behavior that they're being taught at home at school. And unfortunately, that leads to dramatic effects where it's, you know, if you're being plagued by these types of conversations and this type of exposure at home, is it really such a large leap that then that child would hurt other children at school? I think if we try to take a 20,000 foot view picture of this, then we would understand it would not be such a large leap. Additionally, with suicide, you know, if you're constantly hearing one side of you hates the other side of you, and that is how children truly see it. They see themselves in their parents. So they don't really see mom and dad as completely independent people from themselves. They see it all as a unit because that's how we're taught as children is that a family is a unit. And so whenever they're exposed to that, would it really be that large of a leap for a child to then hurt themselves whenever they hear this type of exposure? I think if we really think about it, no, it's not that large of a leap. And that's really all that I'm trying to say is that, can we please start to see this for what it really is, which is that a child is being exposed to a lot of trauma early on when the parents are so disrespectful of each other, disrespectful just in, in general with the way that they talk disrespectful with the amount of time that they, you know, allow the child to have with the other parent, disrespectful with how they treat the other parent and that parent's role. You know, I think we just need to get down to the science of it, which is that it, it takes two people to make a child and those two people have inherent rights to that child. 
And those rights should not just be violated without understanding what the consequences are. So uh, what you just mentioned, this uh, animosity between parents will, will bring a very negative impact on children. Uh, can this be a reason why, uh, why the courts will usually try not to put the family together to stop this animosity? Or is there something, is, is there something else, other benefits involved? What do you mean? Is, uh, Why would the court, you're saying that the court would eliminate one parent because of the animosity? That generally doesn't happen. Uh, like, uh, for example, uh, uh, in Japan, uh, at the very least in Japan, they will eliminate one parent by law. Like literally the, the court will, will, uh, will not encourage any kind of visitation. Can, can this be a reason that uh, two wearing uh, two wearing uh, parents is the is like a, a bad influence uh, for a child. So I can't speak to the laws in Japan. Obviously, I'm in America, but the you know I would say based on the research, all of the body of research that I have found, that you know there's there would be no reason why a parent being eliminated would help the situation. I see. Okay. All of the research points to children needing both parents. I mean, obviously, if one parent's physically or sexually abusive to a child, then there are a lot of issues there that are going to come into play. But parents are necessary components of a child's life. That's just reality. And uh, being being this reality, we can bring uh, like uh, the latest of, uh, let's say, Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt. Why Why their visitation isn't going smooth, given all the research? Well, you know, unfortunately, if you receive bad advice from an attorney or from someone in court, then you may feel like, oh, I need to do this or that or the other to protect my children and to keep control over them. I think a lot of times what's happening is one parent or the other wants to have control. Well, having control doesn't mean that that's in the best interest of the child. So it would be my statement that we need to pull back from just wanting to have control and truly looking at what we know to be the psychological research of children and the psychological understanding of what is necessary for a child. Well, I hope I hope that I, I hope that will be the case at large. And until now, until now, unfortunately, it doesn't seem like so. I would say that the pendulum is starting to swing a different direction. I think in all of life, you know, in throughout history, we do things. Um, we try them out and then we see how they go and then we adjust them. Unfortunately, that's just how we make our path in this world as humans. And I think that at least in America, we have seen that the divorce culture has been incredibly destructive and, and the pendulum is starting to swing the other direction. We have states that are making shared parenting law. We have um, judicial officials who are researching this and trying to find more of an understanding of what's happening to children. We have legislators that are backing this. Um, we have government officials who are getting behind it. We have, you know, people are starting to understand that there's a massive disparity between um, representation. Unfortunately, the, you know, if you're not able to have good counsel, then your your ability to um, be able to fight for yourself or for your own children is incredibly affected. And so we're starting to see all of those things in America and make changes. I will say that I've been doing this for a decade straight out of law school. And in the last five years, things have changed dramatically in America. 
All right, Nicole. Extending the idea of the adverse effects of divorce on children. And it's not just divorce. It's litigated conflict, adversarial divorce. You know, normal divorce, which is handled outside of a court where two parents can be understanding and respectful, that is not going to necessarily affect a child. What we're talking about is high conflict divorce, for sure. Exactly. High conflict divorces. So in your book, you mentioned that in order to avoid uh, high conflict divorce, you can follow certain steps to make it a more collaborative process. Can you explain a bit about the process that you mentioned in the book? Yes. Yeah, so in the collaborative process, both parents choose to stay out of court. They do that for a number of reasons because they understand that it's less expensive, that it's less of an emotional toll that they want to protect their children, they want to keep things private, and they want to control the time frame that it takes. You know, in America, if you get into a custody battle, it could take 18 years to finalize it. That's a bit of a long amount of time. And so what we want to do is try to expose what is actually happening, what is it that you can do outside of having to deal with divorce in court. And one of those options is collaborative. There are multiple options, and each state and country is different. Um, the International Association of Collaborative Professionals actually does um, support collaborative throughout the entire world. I've actually trained in collaborative in Italy, um, and there were people from all over the world at that training. And so, you know, this is a global effort to try to keep parents out of court because truly, the family unit is not designed to be in a litigation process. Right. And uh, do you? Do you think it's it's a good idea for the family court to be open, like let's say criminal courts are open to the public? Is is that is that something beneficial for the process uh, to be more um, more open, more transparent, or 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 the current the current one where everything is done uh, under closed door is 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 the better solution? In America, it is an open court scenario. We only close our courts for juveniles. And so um, I'm not sure what other countries are doing, but in America, it is an open court. I will say the effect of that is that grown children are now going back through and finding their parents' public court orders and um, are able to kind of read, you know, what happened during their entire trial. If that is put in the in the facts of the order, you know, it is very intensive reading for adult children now who are in college. And this is a trend that I've seen. You know, I deal a lot with adult children of divorce and helping them. They come to me and ask me questions, try to understand really their own brokenness. There are many, you know, in my book, I actually called out Adele's divorce before it even happened. And, and I think that, you know, that if you listen to her newest 30 album, I think it really sheds a lot of light on what people feel as being children of, you know, animosity and and um and hatred and then trying to go on and have a marriage and have that fail as well. There's one song specifically she sings that says easy on me and it basically relates to when I was a child I didn't understand I didn't have a good model. I didn't, you know, have an ability to see what love really was and because of that it's hard for me to be able to do that now. That's essentially the essence of what I draw from the song. And I think that that is what we're seeing. You know, that's adult children of divorce come to me. They reviewed their parents' pleadings. They've reviewed the final judgment. They see what their parents said about each other, what they said about them, the value that they placed on the child as a child support 
amount, you know, and they don't understand it and they don't understand why their parents ever had to get to that place anyway, when they could have just come to an agreement. They agreed to have a child, you know, the the agreement of what to do with the child after that really should come from two people understanding that they want to protect the child. Unfortunately, that has not happened. um, And it has been more of a, you know, a play, a power play between the parents. But that is becoming more and more exposed. And a, and a big reason for that is all of these adult children of divorce are saying, you know, why did this happen? Why are you doing this? And I know whenever I am married or I get divorced or I have a custody dispute, I'm not going to behave this way because I know what happened to me. And I will make sure that I do not pass that on to the next generation. And that is what I, what my mission statement is, is that I personally am breaking my own chain and my own family and making sure that I don't expose my child to what I was exposed to. And I think each individual can do that. You know, we can't correct the wrongs of the past. And, and, and honestly, we're all, you know, have some sort of personality issue from whatever our parents did when we were younger. That's just human nature. You know, we learn the good and the bad from our parents. But it's a statement of, I'm not going to let this happen to my children, and I'm not going to be a part of this moving forward if I can help it. And all we can do is control our own behavior. I think as we continue forward and more people are exposed to this and, and more children are becoming adult versions of this, they're able to say, I'm going to do my, my piece and I'm going to do my part to be able to make sure that I'm not continuing um, to, to make this go forward. Just because it's the norm right now doesn't mean it's right. And that's what I'm doing as being a generational chain breaker. And I know a lot of other people who are products of this system who are trying to break the same effect on children. Right. And, uh, you know, like a lot of people are listening to our podcast. There's about 10 to 20 percent parents who are going through some kind of high conflict divorce or like, you know, stepping right into it. So what advice you have for somebody who's going to get divorced or like, you know, in the process of it to actually bring up the collaborative process and how can they convince the other partner who might not like them anymore, who might have some kind of animosity towards them to actually start the collaborative process of doing this outside of the court? Because I think the hardest part of this is to convince the other partner. So in North Carolina, what I started was the collaborative attorney network. And so what we did was get all the collaborative attorneys together. Um, We started a nonprofit organization just to bring awareness so that whenever someone's looking at the nonprofit website, it's not an attorney's website, it's a nonprofit. They can see just open information, not biased information from one attorney to another, just trying to get the information out there. Additionally, a big part of it is writing the book. You know, the reason I wrote the book is so that a parent can hand that book across the aisle and it's not their personal experience, it's mine. It's not their voice, it's mine. It's an independent third person saying, if you go down this road, this is what will happen to your children. And so please, please, please think through this before you go down the road. And there have been a lot of parents who have, who have given the book across the aisle and the other person's been, been able to kind of open their eyes and have an open conversation. And I think that that's probably one of the biggest deals out of this is to be able to have and spread awareness of what's happened to children in the past, what could happen to children in the future. I believe that parents really are trying to do the best that they can and they follow advice until they see that that advice is bad. Unfortunately, that we're just now starting to understand that there's been some bad advice in the family arena and we've got to correct right. it. Uh, I would like to ask a little bit about uh, parental alienation. 
why why the courts are able to blatantly ignore the parental alienation even when it's painfully obvious to everyone involved? Why why sometimes they let it continue? Why why don't they why don't they stop it? Unfortunately, the parents that are alienated are creating a lot of animosity. And so they're coming at this in a very angry, very mad at the court, scorched earth type of response. And they're doing a lot of intense, egregious things to try to get attention to this. And unfortunately, the court does not respond well to that level of intense animosity. And so even though the parents are totally validated in being very angry because their children, their most precious thing has been taken from them, the court cannot hear it through the anger. So it has been my statement that in order to be heard, we have to come at this in a peaceful way to show these are the children, this is what's happened to them, and it cannot be a personal thing. Unfortunately, the court shuts down whenever people get amped up over any type of scenario. They don't listen as well. It has to be a very formatted response. And whenever people try to represent themselves and do it pro se and go to the court and they're very angry and they have all of these very angry messages and they have all of these very angry podcasts and they have all these very angry videos. Um, on social media, the court just sees that that parent is seemingly crazy and they don't understand or see what's truly happening because they're not able to have enough time to hear the whole scenario. You know, when you have a trial, you generally have three hours or maybe a week. Well, that's not going to ever be enough time to fully uncover what's happened during a relationship and to be able to understand what's going on. So it's my advice that the parents try to be as calm as possible when addressing any part of the court when dealing with these issues. And that, you know, it takes time to deal with it. Patience is a virtue here. Unfortunately, I understand that everyday loss is a day loss with your child. And it is something that is, you know, makes you sick to your stomach. You can't breathe. You can't sleep. You can't eat. But when addressing the court and when dealing with any type of social media or putting this out there, calmness is going to be essential to getting this message across. Nicole, in your book, you mentioned that the legal system in America is broken. Can you explain briefly to our audience how are the family system or the family legal system is broken? And what do you suggest that we can so do about it? The system in America is broken just because You know, the court is not the place for a family to be divided. It's just not. The the court in America was founded on um, a civil court and a criminal court. Civil is to make you whole again if you've been damaged. Criminal is to pay your debt to society if you do not follow the laws of the society. So neither one of those, the family context, does not fit in either one of those formats. And so that is why the system in America is broken. The steps that are being taken in America to fix that are helping to have shared parenting out of the gate, where when two people separate, it's immediately 50-50 custody until a court comes to a different determination. And we have states that are moving towards that, bills on the floor of almost every you know, state that there is in relationship to this. Additionally, our child support system is incredibly broken. You know, Here in America, you can be put on child support without ever given the opportunity to have custody of your child. 
And that's the bigger problem. You know, we do need to support these children, but also the children need their parents. They need physical time with their parents. So that's another piece of it. The court's already changing. You know, it's doing mandatory mediation now for custody in a, in a lot of the states in, in our country. And so I will say that a lot of this is starting to change in America and it's getting better. You know, we're just on the beginning of it, but it is starting to get better. Well, that's that's very, that's very good to hear. Unfortunately, in Japan, um, the situation is uh, absolutely opposite to U.S. Uh, the child support upon because uh, they practice sole custody. Um, Upon divorce, uh, one parent automatically gets the child, and the other parent is legally is being completely cut out of that of that child's life. And when it comes to visitation, the basic view in Japan is that uh, uh, if people are divorcing, means means you know there's bad blood amongst the uh, the family members, and the children are better not to be involved in that situation. And and therefore, you know, they, they cut it completely. They, they, they remove a child completely from the other parent's life. And uh, the only thing the other parent uh, is liable is uh, the child support, which is very, very difficult uh, to enforce and uh, seldomly paid. And the reason for being seldomly paid is uh, because uh, of course, the other parent has no ability to 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 be part of that child's life. And what what can when you have a, such a bad situation like I just described? What what are, might be the first steps which can bring uh, you know the the first building block to go towards a better model well, uh, where children somehow will be actually entitled to see to see their parent regardless if the parents are fighting or not. Honestly, I believe that in a situation like that, it's going to take the children that we're talking about growing up and becoming legislators and, um, you know, in government to change it. Unfortunately, that's what's happened in America. People like me who are adult children of divorce become very involved because of their own personal story and understanding that it's completely broken. You know, I don't know much that I can say to do with a system like what you're describing in Japan, where you know they pick a family essentially and the other pam- other families out. I will say that eventually children grow up to be adults and then they make their own decisions. And from my own experience of who all's come to me, children go looking for answers and they go looking to try to find the other parent or to try to find the other piece of themselves. I think that's part of being a human is you're always on a quest to understand who you are. And the basis of who you are is who are your parents. I mean, that's just reality. Um, we have a, adopted children who do the same thing. And so I think that that is where the reform will truly happen. And it is the reason that it's happening now. And I'm one of those people. And a lot of my colleagues are in the same boat that I am. And they're trying to fight this fight because they know it's the right thing to do. I mean, in reality, I could make a lot more money off of litigation. But I would never lay my head down at night knowing that I took money from the back of children. So far, we've been discussing a lot of topics that I picked up from your book. But while doing the research for this episode, I also went through your blog and you had a fantastic article written there on prenuptial agreements. Can you explain a bit about the importance of a prenup 
and how to go about setting one with your partner or potential Absolutely. partner. So, you know, obviously I only practice in the state of North Carolina in America, so I do just have to make that disclosure. I can't um, practice anywhere else just by my license restriction. But in considering a prenup, please consider this. It's not just how are we going to divide everything at the end of the day. It can also be a process option. You can have a prenup that just says, if we get divorced, we are going to try collaborative before we ever go to litigation. Or we're going to try mediation before we ever go to litigation. Having that contractual requirement keeps someone from going directly to court and create the responsibility of the parties to try to settle before they go to court. That in and of itself gives children a very high chance of not being exposed to conflict and of the parties from being exposed to conflict. And so that would be the biggest thing. Additionally, you can go ahead and discuss what it is that your wants are for your children in your prenup. And now it may change or a judge may not follow your exact custody But you can set out what is the mindset of the parties as they get married in a contract. That's helpful down the road for a judge to be able to see what it is that the parties were trying to achieve. Additionally, um, you can keep what is the collaborative process at the forefront of what's going on. And so, you know, everyone in America understands what divorce culture is now and that, you know, it is somewhat of a war zone if you end up in court. If you eliminate that and you eliminate that from the radar where the two parties understand that they're going to be amicable, then that's a, that's very helpful. Another thing that most people don't know that they have an opportunity to do, and again, I can't say in different countries or states whether or not they do, but in North Carolina, you have an ability to do what's called a post knock, which means that you have already gotten married, but you want to create a contract stating If we separate, this is exactly how our things will be divided and contract to that as married people. And that's helpful because if you do that before you're fully getting separated, you still somewhat are trying to preserve your marriage. It may help you have more reasonable conversations. Right. And if, like I know friends who who have had prenups before and friends who did not. And one of the biggest difference that I get when I talk to them is the ability to discuss prenup with your with your significant others right so how do you bring the topic of prenup without the other person thinking like hey you don't really love me or like uh, you know this uh, like you know how like i'm not talking about a specific gender or anything but i'm just saying like people can be super touchy about prenups so what do you think uh, is the best way to bring this up and how to discuss this with somebody before you get uh, you got married and i think it'll be even harder if you do a post nuptial so what's your opinion on that it is a hard conversation to have i do think that most people understand that if you're trying to you know if you're trying to restrict someone from getting alimony or post nup or uh, post separation support or you're trying to restrict what um you know marital property they would be able to get i think people are going to be a lot more prickly about that if you're just setting a process option though I don't think people get upset about that. And of all the post-nups and prenups that we do, I think people are very understanding of wanting to protect one another because that's what you're doing is saying, hey, you know, if we get divorced, I don't want to be a really bad version of myself and try to come after you. I'd rather us have this here so that, you know, where neither one of us are going to go after the other person. It allows us to be reasonable people. 
Um, I think it's a very protective thing to do. And so if you couch it in those terms of trying to protect your relationship, trying to protect the respect that you share for one another and, and maintain that, one of the best ways to do that is going to be to go ahead and set out which process you would have to use should you decide to get divorced. Right. Uh, I have I have a, an interesting question for you. Uh, can you tell us... For, one thing for... I did want to, if I can get to that question, one thing that I really wanted to touch on that I think is really important. In America, we have the ACEs study, the Adverse Childhood Experiences study. That study has been around for decades and is very, very important in America. The application of the ACEs study to divorce and conflict at home has been written about a lot in the past decade. And many of those, of that a lot of that information is really important to read. And it is becoming a huge um, conversation in this world that we're having now. And that study is respected by a lot of the countries in this world. And I think that it's an important piece of what we're going to be able to do to show what happens to the trauma that in children and what happens down the road with behavioral consequences to long-term exposure, um, including increased risk of aggressive behavior, involvement in violence, and difficulties in relationships with others. A lot of it is PTSD, and that's what we're starting to understand is truly what's really happening. So I think if anybody's listening to this, I would like to really start to draw attention to the ACEs study and how many types of issues within family law is uh, contributing to that abandonment, attachment, the animosity that they're experiencing, the environment that they're exposed to. A lot of that causes a lot of issues. Um, you know, care, environment, mediated stress happens a lot in um, postnatal caregiver unavailability or absence. That's one of the biggest things in the ACEs study. And when we're talking about parental alienation, that's exactly what we're talking about. And just to kind of, what, what that really goes through is the genetic and science um, responses. Um, so basically the neurotransmitters that are changing, inflammation in different parts of the brain, um, you know, the DNA and what's happening there, um, epigenetic changes, developmental trajectory. I mean, all of that can be tracked whenever you're dealing with this. And I think looking at it from that perspective is what helps the courts to truly see the depth of what's happening. Right. Uh, so from, from your experience, a, a little bit about the children, uh, from your experience, uh, can you tell us, uh, what are we missing in the system for the children to voice their concerns and these concerns to be validated and actually addressed? We need to have advocates for children in the system and advocates for these studies. Um, I think that that's a big part of it. But again, that's what I'm doing. That's what so many people are doing to try to push this. Honestly, I can't tell you the amount that I've seen it change just in the last five years. It's been incredibly rewarding um, to have had the childhood that I had. You know, I really don't have a relationship with my parents at all by choice at this point because of the level of conflict between the two of them. 
I don't want to expose my newborn baby to that. And I don't want her life to be exposed to what they're doing. Um, so I've had a very, you know, tracked and very careful relationship with them. And I think that as I've gone through my career, I've seen more and more and more people who are really fighting this fight and they're trying to be the voice of children. And the more that that happens, the more that the systems will start to understand this is not just a bunch of angry parents. These are scientists. These are attorneys. These are psychologists. These are therapists. These are principals. These are teachers. These are guidance counselors. These are nurses. These are doctors. These, these are everybody that's saying the same thing, not just angry parents. And that is what's breaking the mold. Mm-hmm. Um, another another uh, thing which which we struggle a little bit with the system currently is uh, why why do you think the state should or should not uh, benefit from the child support? Like uh, for example, uh, the Swedish model is uh, where the child support is mainly based on the child's actual needs and not the time spent or uh, or any custodial agreement between parents. And the lawyers does not profit from it. Uh, the state does not profit from it. Anything to do with child support will go directly to the child and only about uh, his needs. But in, in America at the moment, this is, uh, if I understand correctly, this is uh, quite a bit missing. So I really like the Swedish model. I think that it's a good model. I like the child support model there. Um, I think it should be based on the needs of the child. When we do collaborative, that's exactly what we do. So what we do is spreadsheets and we we do everything based. All support conversations are based on actual needs instead of formulas. And I think that that's a better option. You know, each family is different. Each child is different. I don't think that the formulas are very helpful these days, especially with Um, the equality of genders. I don't think that the formulas are addressing women working and a need for that to be um, to be seen. I mean, now you know we actually have studies that show that women who have primary custody are making far less money um, and are not having an employment opportunity, whereas women who are having shared custody are absolutely able to move on and um, and finalize their own careers and how much that's helping women um, in this, you know, break the gender gap in, uh, in pay. And so there are studies by Emma Johnson and uh, women for shared parenting that are now showing that this is better for everybody. Uh, what can be the main reason uh, that the judges or attorneys will forgo the children's best interest, even when they can clearly see that the decision decisions which they're making is detrimental to the child how can they clearly see that well uh, sometimes uh, let's say there will be a case uh, uh, where they'll where uh, there will be a parental alienation heavily involved and uh, the judge will not put a stop to it or uh, the attorney will not tell his client you know to, to stop doing that because it's actually detrimental to the child. I mean, you're making a lot of assumptions. There are going to be arguments from the other side that the other parent is causing distress to the child because of this or that or the other. So 
it's not going to be easy for the court to see one way or another what's happening. It's never going to be an obvious detriment to the child because anybody can say that that detriment is coming from any type of angle. That's the problem with the system. I think that the, the way to fix it is to not involve the system. There should be no system. There should be no determination of who gets what. It should be set that it's shared parenting. And then from there, if there's an issue, we should go from there. That's my, my personal opinion. But you, you say whenever it's obvious in a court, I think there's nothing that's obvious. There are two sides that are trying to play the other side out to be a criminal or, um, you know, or the, the problem in the scenario. And if both sides are very actively trying to say that the other person is the problem, it's not necessarily easy for the trier of fact to figure out what the middle ground is or what the truth is. So I think that, you know, from one side or another, it's easy to say, well, this is obvious that the child is having a detrimental effect. Yes, but then what is actually causing that detrimental effect is where the court's having a problem trying to discern what's actually happening. Whereas if we're basing it on an ACEs study and we're basing it on actual data and we're basing it on real research, then I think, and then we're coming up with a standard based on that research. I think that's what allows everyone to take a deep breath and realize that this is not an opportunity for one parent to exploit the other, which is what we have now. And that's because everything is based on an individual scenario. Um, and, you know, there's no ability for us to have a baseline. Right. Building on what you just mentioned, right? Um, when I talk to like fathers who are going through this, they always say there's a gender bias when it comes to like, you know, the family courts. When I talk to the mothers who are going through this, they're always like, hey, the dad has more money than me so he can afford to like get better lawyers and all that. So you uh, being a lawyer yourself, what's your opinion on this? Is there a gender bias? And if that is, what are the steps that we can take to eliminate it? I think there is a gender it? bias that's inherent because our world used to be different. Women did not work like they do now. Women had to fight for a right to be not property. You know, actually in America, the historical perspective of what actually created this culture and the problem is based on the fact that, you know, women, we, it came off the back of the feminist movement. When women were no longer property and could file, that's when all of these filings happened and that that was off of um, whenever Reagan was actually the governor of California, no-fault divorce was started. All of those filings are what created this massive backlog. And it wasn't that women were trying to be, you know, adversarial. They were just saying, okay, well, I've never been able to file before unless I had been beaten or unless my husband had an affair. Now I can just file because I want to. I would like to get divorced. But so many filings happened that we had this huge backlog and, and then that created this system to where it took years or months for people to get through it. Then the animosity grew and the bills grew and the attorney's fees grew and the docket grew and it just unfortunately created an issue. So the world has changed. Women are not necessarily needing support in every scenario now. Women are working. Women should be equal. So there is a gender bias because it takes the laws a long time to catch up with the, with the society. And we've had a big change in society where women are now just now starting to make what men make. And so now we need to adapt the laws to be able to change, to understand that. And they are a little bit behind in that arena. So I would say there is an inherent gender bias. Um, and I do believe that, you know, for a very long time, we thought women needed to be the primary parent. And we have now found that that is not necessarily true. I do believe women have a very strong role in the very beginning, especially if they're breastfeeding. 
but I do believe that parents should have shared custody, equal custody. Fathers are just as important as mothers. And I say that because I had my mother, but I really needed to have my father too. I needed to have both of them there because there were things going on at my house that I needed another person to be able to regulate just by having a break from one issue to go to another. And then having that parent to be able to understand what was happening in my life overall. There's an important piece of that. Okay, thank you. So uh, what's what your opinion in what, what needs to be uh, done to enforce the visitation the same way uh, the child support is is being enforced? Is, is there anything to, to, to be done in that department? Uh, that's where I think that child support and custody need to come hand in hand to appropriately address visitation. I think that that's the best place for that. If someone's going to file for child support, it should automatically come with a custody determination. Great. All right, Ashley, thank you so much for being here. My last question to you is that, can you tell a little bit about your podcast and your site and your services? Absolutely. To Find me here? at Divorce Healthy and www.anrlaw.com. Um, there's also the book on Amazon, The Cure for Divorce Culture. We're on a mission to change how divorce is handled in America in order to be able to help children to have a fair shot at a relationship with both parents and to have as healthy of relationships as they can in their own future life. Um, and that's our mission. We're trying our best and uh, awareness is the key. So thank you so much for having me on your podcast so we can continue to spread that. Thank you for your time, Ashley. Now, I would like to remind everyone that our goal here is to share knowledge with you guys and show that you're not alone in this. With that said, if you need specific legal advice, please get your own independent advice from a qualified legal practitioner. If you're a minor or if you happen to have difficulties in understanding certain parts within this episode, please approach a responsible adult or someone knowledgeable in these topics and ask them for clarifications. We have done our best to make sure that it doesn't offend anyone. And if you have further questions or comments or feedback regarding Find My Parent or this interview, you can always email me at sk at findmyparent.org. If you're someone who got separated from your own parent and would like to find your parent again, please go to findmyparent.org and fill out your details. With the help of our smart algorithms and matching technology, We hope to help you find your alienated parent again. If you're part of an NGO or even a private company passionate about this topic, please reach out through the contact us page and findmyparent.org. And we hope to work together with you. All right, folks, that's it for this week. Speak to you next week. Take care. Till then. <laughs>